We have just released issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is evidence of first ghosts. My guest is Dr. Irving Finkel, who is Senior Assistant Keeper of Ancient Mesopotamian Script, Languages and Cultures at the British Museum. He is the curator in charge of cuneiform inscriptions on tablets of clay from ancient Mesopotamia, of which the Middle East Department has the largest collection of any modern museum. He is author of several books, including The First Ghosts, The Lewis Chessmen and What Happened to Them, narrated by David Attenborough, The Ark Before Noah, and The Last Resort Library. Irving is located in London, England. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Dr. Finkel. It's a pleasure to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Lovely. I'm glad to be here with you. To get us started, you are an expert on the cuneiform. Can you describe how you began your interest in translating this most ancient text? Well, the thing is, you know, cuneiform writing is the oldest kind of writing that we know about from archaeology. That's the first thing. And it comes from the ancient culture of Iraq, from ancient Mesopotamia. And the writing was invented about 3500 BC, and it was used for at least 3000 years, probably longer. And written in it were two different languages, one called Sumerian and one called Babylonian. So when I went to university, and I studied these ancient languages. I had a very good teacher. And then I wrote a PhD. And then I went to Chicago. And then I got a job in the British Museum as a curator responsible for these ancient documents, which are all made of clay. And we have a very big collection here. So when I first started work here and ever after, I used to go regularly through the whole collection. There's about 130,000 pieces of clay. Um, various sizes I went through the whole collection more than once to see what was there and in the course of doing that collected bits and pieces together the numbers of the tablets in the collection which belonged to certain categories so one of them was medicine another one was magic and another one was this thing to do with ghosts because I discovered that there were um, some tablets to do with ancient ghosts and then I discovered there were quite a lot actually and some had been published in books and journals and some of them had never been published at all and no one had written anything about them as a whole um, not so much um, translating every one in detail like you would do in a scholarly book or a journal but a book about them as a whole to try and create an idea of what people in this ancient culture thought about ghosts, how much they believed in them, what they did about it, 
and how their ghostly life, so to speak, went forward. So it was a bit of a long process. And then when the museum was shut for two years because of the COVID problem, then in that time, I converted what had been a load of bits of paper into this book. It was a perfect opportunity, there's nothing else to do. So I produced this book, which I'd always wanted to write about the ancient ghosts of Mesopotamia. And it was quite an adventure. Yeah, beautiful. Cuneiform is a form of writing where it's wedge-shaped, pressed into clay? Yes. Well, the thing is, before the alphabet came into the world, which, of course, we all use and take for granted, there were other writing systems. And one of them was ancient Egyptian, as you know, what hieroglyphs look like, and another one was cuneiform. And the cuneiform writing system was nothing like an alphabet, because when the writing first started out, um, they never conceived of making signs for consonants and vowels separately like we do. So the alphabet is a brilliant invention because with 26 letters, you can write any language in the world with the vowels and consonants. But this didn't happen. They had a different idea that they would write in syllables so that you would take um, a word by ear and divide it up logically into its component parts. And for each sound part, there was a sign. So you had to learn lots and lots of signs, about, I don't know, sorry, 800 of them or something like that. But when you'd learned them, you had all these syllable signs and other kinds of signs, which meant you could write any language you wanted by ear in the same way that we do with the alphabet. But this was a very long time ago. And the two main languages they used, Sumerian and Akkadian, are both extinct. They've been extinct for a very long time. But um, the people who developed this writing, um, they didn't start off with wedges, which is what we call the writing, because the later signs are made of different shapes of wedges at different angles. They started off doing little pictures. Um, they drew on pieces of clay with a point, like you might do with a pencil on a piece of paper. And they drew these very simple signs, which at first were very elementary and couldn't express language. And then they had the idea that when they had these signs, they could use them to express sounds as well as ideas. They could have an agreement that this sign meant this sound, and then they could write words made of sounds with these picture signs. And then gradually, gradually to write it faster, they developed a thing with a thing like a, a stick like a chopstick on the clay and you press the end of it in at lots of different angles to make all the different signs so if you've never seen one of these tablets before and most people usually haven't they ne people never think they're writing they might think they're a piece of breakfast cereal or something you feed to the dog but actually these clay tablets which can be covered in writing front and back are the most miraculous things because the people have been dead for two or three or four thousand years of time, turned into dust. But when you can read their words, then their ideas and their character and what was important to them and what they were afraid of all become clear to us. So it's an extraordinary thing. It's a bit like speaking to them sometimes on the end of a telephone because you can tune in to 
somebody's life from their business letters or you can find out who's ill from the medical texts and what they do to make people better and what's going on in the country from the state the army and battling with the enemies and all those different things are written down and and people who work in this mad field reading these very ancient messages find out a huge amount about this ancient culture a surprising amount and part of it is this literature to do with ghosts and that's what I got very interested in and I'll tell you why because if you read about ghosts if you get books out of the library or from a bookshop and you buy them there are different kinds of books there are lots and lots of horror stories which are made up with um, things clanking down a corridor with chains and everybody likes to be frightened by them and there's endless ghost stories and they're more or less all the same and they are more or less all inventions and then you get um, hoaxes when people write books when they pretend they've seen ghosts in houses and they sell a lot of money and then you get historians who write about ghosts in the past and they know about the elizabethans and they might know about the middle ages but they don't know about the ancient world so actually the ancient greeks knew a lot about ghosts and wrote a lot about them and so did the romans in latin there's lots of material about ghosts there and the ancient egyptians and the ancient babylonians so there's a whole world of early um, material about ghosts and it just so happens that archaeologically the oldest evidence we have is from this cuneiform world already by 3000 bc they had a word for ghost and it was obvious that something they knew about so it's the earliest of the witnesses to this human idea and of course a lot of people in their real lives they say well ghosts don't exist it's a load of nonsense a lot of other people have seen a ghost at one time or another and never dare tell anybody because they'll think they're mad so they just keep it quiet and they never explain anything about it and there are people who've seen lots of ghosts wherever they go they see them and all the kind of different range of persons but we live in a world where seeing a ghost let's say theoretically is not something that you go to work and tell everybody over coffee hey guess what i saw a fantastic ghost last night oh what did he look like did he say anything nothing like that people shut up very seriously and they never tell anyone because of ridicule and so you have in the sophistication of modern england modern america great part of the so-called modern world a sort of feeling that ghosts are something um well, it's best not to follow this up. It's, you know, it's something doubtful. It's nobody really knows. It's probably all nonsense. Best not to make a lot of fuss about it. And outside of these complacent Western kind of worlds is the rest of the world. And in the rest of the world, where people are largely untouched by all the dreadful things that make spontaneous belief so difficult, people believe in ghosts just like they ought used to do in the ancient world in villages all over south america and india and asia you could walk down the street and anybody you asked about ghosts would tell you stories straight away and if you said oh i met this person who thought ghosts were invented oh you come to my house this evening well you'll see after supper so you have a situation it seems to me that you have a kind of um, rather complacent we know better world um, populated by us and all round the edge 
you have a world where people's ideas, real ideas, haven't really changed ever at all. And ghosts is one of those things which is a deep, long, lasting, running human preoccupation. And in most parts of the world, it still runs without interruption. And in our intellectual capacities, um, because of one monotheistic religion, which is usually very narrow-minded about things and very forbidding, and two, science, which will have nothing to do with ghosts, these two things pile on top of the what I call the natural um, attitude to it all and suppress it. And one of the interesting things about reading these very ancient testimonies, in my opinion at least, re reading their voices and reading their rituals and their hymns and prayers and their descriptions and all the evidence of the different kinds which comes to us, you didn't have a world there where one person believed in ghosts and another didn't. And you didn't have somebody going out in the garden and saying, I think I saw a ghost in the kitchen this morning. And the neighbour saying, oh, how can you be so naive? Such a, nobody believes in those things any longer. No such conversation ever happened. Because it is clear that in this ancient culture, and I imagine in later times too, that people not only did believe in ghosts, they took them for granted. They had a role in society where they were part of life. And you can see this reflected from the kings down to beggars, that everybody operated in a world where ghosts were a fact of life. You can say they're a fact of death, but they were a fact of life. And this is the reason, and it's something which is still perceptible in the modern world, which is this, that when people die, uh, which they did, of course, and were buried, of course, the special bit inside them which made them different from everybody else, their essence or whatever you like to call it, their spirit, left the rotting body, which was buried, and according to Mesopotamian ideas, went down to the underworld or the netherworld, where all the ghosts of the dead were supposed to wait, hang around and congregate. So this was the mechanism. So you buried the person in the in their grave and in some some periods or another food and drink was poured down a special thing down there for the ghosts in case they were hungry and that's where they were so they were there but they were somewhere over there and you didn't have to think about them but sometimes these ghosts like later ghosts weren't happy uh, sometimes there were troubles where they were in the other world because for example and in the description of the Babylonian netherworld, there were people like pickpockets and thieves and, and, and gangsters. There were places where people didn't go because the, the ghosts were dangerous, which seems to me hilarious. But this, this is one thing. Another thing is um, if there's not enough water, because water is always at a premium in, the, in that part of the universe, then they get unsatisfied and they get worried and anxious. And of course, if they died under terrible circumstances, which is not uncommon, um, then the ghost, even though the body is laid in the earth and the ghost is sent down with all the ritual, can never find peace because of the circumstances under which it died. So this means that they come back and they they usually go to the place where they um, where they lived when they were alive. They, especially if the body is buried in the courtyard of the house, that makes a lot of sense. So ghosts come back, and I think when people saw ghosts, a good proportion of them were family members, not all of them by any means. 
And so a ghost might come or suddenly appear in the kitchen or it might pull your hair when you to annoy you to get your attention and they'd be a kind of nuisance. And the point would be that they needed something to be supplied. Well, if a ghost was of somebody who was burnt to death, there was no solution. They would roam in the roam in the ether without without kind of peace of mind. And if a woman died in childbirth, it was quite difficult to sort out the difficulty but other things could be resolved and the easiest one to resolve was if the offerings of food and drink um, were interrupted and they weren't regular then the ghosts would get kind of knocked about it and start coming and making trouble so you have a situation that people knew that a ghost or other ghosts could come at any time and they might be something that made you jump which is one thing and they might be something which really got on your nerves because you felt they were always there or following you when you went in the bathroom or something like that. And sometimes they made people ill because um, if they were malicious and nasty persons when they were alive, the chances are that their ghosts would have the same characteristic. So people who were sadists and Nazis and people of that kind in antiquity, when they came back as ghosts, would behave in their normal fashion. So there were ghosts that went in your ear when you were asleep and could make you very ill indeed and the doctors in Babylonia had to recognize the symptoms of this thing they sometimes called it hand of a ghost and then do the operations with magic words and things you wear around your neck and things you eat and drink and things you inhale all these sorts of devices were there to drive out the vagrant ghost to make the person well again so we have these texts which cover these different aspects of life in the underworld and why they went there and why they get miserable and how to recognize these things and how to placate them and look after them and be nice to them because on the whole one of the things about it which is so endearing to me about this matter is that people forgave ghosts basically for coming back unless they were really dangerous then they had some sympathy. They knew that wherever they were, it wasn't going well and they needed some kind of um, support or some kind of improvement. Maybe the grave needed to be smarter or whatever, but something like that. They were on the whole sympathetic. They weren't frightened of them in the sense that people are frightened today by ghosts because, as I say, they took them for granted. And I th often think that a very good analogy is the situation if you happen to be in your kitchen peeling vegetables carefully with a sharp knife and a mouse runs across the floor and disappears under the wainscot this is exactly the same kind of thing it makes you jump like anything when you weren't expecting it probably cut your finger and then you think um oh what a pain and then you think you're going to have to get someone to deal with it. And those are the things which were the same situation with Mesopotamia, that it made you jump. And then you have to get somebody in eventually. If it got really bad, you'd have to get someone proper to drive out with a kind of exorcism. Um, very forcefully, the ghost which was causing all the trouble. So the response level is... I think primarily sympathetic up to a point, to a point of fear and terror when the ghost is causing a very great deal of distress. One of the pictures of which makes a lot of sense to me is a kind of ritual where it looks like um, the situation is a man who uh, probably the, the, his wife was dead, almost certainly the wife was dead, and he then married another woman, and the first woman 
the first wife, it appears, comes back into the house because she's jealous and angry and gets into bed and torments everybody. And, um, and I don't know for certain whether the new wife sees this ghost. It's a bit like that play by Noel Coward called Blythe Spirit, which is exactly what happens in this play, that a ghost comes back into a new marriage and only one partner can see them. It's a very funny thing. Well, in Mesopotamia, this was rather complicated and they had a banquet set up where the real wife wasn't there the new wife wasn't there a banquet with a doll representing the old wife and then after that she would be um, taken out and given some means to go back to the underworld with all the things she will need like a picnic basket and this that and the other and so this first goes placated having spent the night with her former husband then disappears and goes away and the new wife comes back and forgets all about her so i mean that is the basic picture and on one level it is rather comic but on a deep level he's actually a very salutary piece of psychology because it is not uncommon in a marital situation where there was either a previous person who's vanished run away or died even which creates a kind of pain and ache in the the person who comes afterwards they can never quite come to terms with what it means especially if it's unknown what happened that sort of thing is a real and rather common psychological problem in in life probably everywhere and with, with, in this thing you have just a moment of witness that the getting rid of a ghost is not just for fun but it's a very deep um and undoubtedly successful operation for clearing away the detritus of the previous relationship and liberating the new partner from that stress then there are most of the dread the rituals most of the magic that we have is fairly straightforward you do sorts of things burn incense and um, offer things up and make ceremonial declarations of faith and uh, faith towards the family and looking after and all that there's a lot of stuff and sometimes you pour water down a well or figurines are given this that and the other to do and they vary from simple to rather complicated so the one with this banquet with the doll and um was obviously rather costly and um took a lot of organization so probably and um, wasn't done very often because you have to make the doll and dress it in everything so that's quite a complex thing and there are one or two other um things of this kind where um in fact that, that one, one of the things i put in this book which is so remarkable there's a clay tablet from babylon from about 400 bc which has a drawing on it of a ghost which is an old man, tall and skinny, um, and with a long beard. And the drawing shows him being led away by a woman, rather stately and rather shapely woman, who has in her hand a rope. And she, he's walking respectfully behind her, and the hands are tied together. And these, these drawings are rather skillfully done. And uh, we read from the tablet that and they're to get rid of a very troublesome ghost who's been afflicting the family and what you have on the front is a description of these figurines to be made of clay what they're dressed in their positions what they look like and then on the back without much in the way of parallel line drawings in the clay done very very delicately of what these models look like so it is for a trainee exorcist who might be brought in for a job like this and this is what we can tell. Firstly, 
that um, if there was a, a reiterated visit from a troublesome ghost and then a professional was called in, I suppose the professional would sit down with the patient, so to speak, and say, well, you know, what can you, what can you tell me? Who is it likely to be? Do you recognize the ghost? And of course, there were no photographs in ancient times. So you all know, people normally knew what their parents looked like and quite often would know what their grandparents looked like, but they wouldn't know anything beyond that. And it would be irretrievable. So it might be, for example, that the ghost of an old person could be someone within memory or not. But in any case, I imagine a clever, um, a clever thinking um, exorcists would try and elicit from the patient if they knew who it was and in many cases they probably did so with the case of this drawing i think it worked like this people were saying what they thought they thought and then perhaps the mother said oh i know who it is it's old uncle Ugh. oh it must be him it's old uncle and uh, and so the um uh, exorcist would say well uh, tell me about it well, I can tell you one thing about him. He can never anywhere without a woman. That's what he was like. He was a terrible womanizer. So the exorcist thinks, ah, oh, well, that's the secret. So what we'll do is we'll make him and a little wife together and we'll do all this magic and she would lead him off with the rope down to the netherworld. They'll live happily ever after and the problem will end. And that is what happened. So if you see this in um, with a critical um mature sophisticated mind you think well what a load of superstitious nonsense and if you look at it from another point of view you think that's really rather comic um, rather funny thing and they've even got a picture of a ghost but actually it's much more than that because a um there's something um brilliant about the possibility of analyzing not that you need um, magic against ghosts but against the specific case how to deal with the specific case which is not with swallowing things or burning things but actually providing what's needed this is one thing it's quite an, a wake-up approach to the, the question of it all but the other thing is that this tablet has become rather famous because it is um unquestionably the picture of this old uncle if that's who he is is the oldest picture of a ghost ever discovered it's from about 400 bc as i said but it is a drawing of a ghost and we know from the writing that's unquestionably what it is well people don't normally draw ghosts and so um one thing led to another and it got in the guinness book of records so if you buy the guinness book of records there is a page with the oldest ghost in the world there recorded for all time with a photograph of it i'm very proud of it and the other thing about that was that when the judge who works for that publication came to the British Museum to see the tablet, he said, well, before we agree about this, there is a rival case of an ancient ghost. So I said, oh, come on, man. I mean, what can it possibly be? This is a dated thing. What is it? He said, well, somewhere in the south of England, somebody thinks they've seen the ghost of a dinosaur. And okay i said maybe they think so but i don't think that measures up in comparison with this hard evidence which you could present in a court of law and he agreed so it's now gone into the guinness book of records so that's an interesting adventure also another thing that's worth mentioning is this that 
we have texts over two two and a half thousand years to do with this situation so it was a feature of mesopotamian life for certain um and almost all of the magic is to get rid of ghosts and sometimes it's gentle and sometimes it's rather brutal and violent to, to drive out the evil of the ghost's presence but um sometimes the opposite idea takes place for example you could have a family I imagine they would be well off with a family house with a courtyard and lots of uncles and aunts all living there lots of children not a small person living on their own in a telephone box so to speak but a family of this kind like a merchant or something might have a yen to find out the answer to some particular question and we don't know what the question is um, it might have been um, where is the gold buried that um, was supposed to have existed in our family we can't find it or maybe who is going to um, who's going to be king of Egypt in 10 years time or some other question like that we have no idea what the question is where it doesn't say but the mechanism is the interesting thing because this the belief was that the dead who were down there uh, were privy to some knowledge of the future that is to say if you could get a ghost to come back you can bring it back and talk to it it would tell you what you want to know so there are some special tablets with magic on and ritual in order to coerce a ghost from the underworld where it's i don't know lying around on its back gazing at the the roof um to come back to the world and not only that to pass into a human skull which has already been made ready on the table as the means for the ghost to communicate with the exorcist the diviner the, the specialist and the person who had the question so we have two or three pieces of evidence that this activity happened and i don't know whether the the obvious question can be answered but if people buried their family members in the courtyard or in a vault under the courtyard where sometimes there were skeletons that went back a long way it is theoretically possible that people could have brought the skull for use of the person they wanted to speak to i don't know whether that's essential or whether you could have any old skull and you'd expect the ghost to come back and use that as a temporary communication system i have a feeling that many ghosts would find it repugnant to use somebody else's skull but there's no evidence about it so what happens is the skull is there and the diviner who's no doubt going full out on atmosphere with um probably a darkened room with incense swirling about and candles flickering and the guy who did this kind of thing was probably quite um, impressive in appearance and not in a three-piece suit but probably wearing a thing like a dressing gown with a belt with things hanging from it and things hanging from his neck and wild hair and god knows probably very very striking and dangerous looking person if you dealt with this kind of thing you wouldn't look like a school teacher this guy would be there doing all this stuff and he would appeal to the sun god to get the character they wanted from the underworld and bring him up he would go in the skull and then when the thing is there it says whatever you ask him he'll tell you so the guy has to say well he's probably frightened as hell because you can imagine if the room is dark 
and there's this gleaming skull on the table, and there's all the build-up and build-up and build-up, and if there's some noise and the skull goes like that, you probably have a heart attack. I can't quite imagine how people pulled it off, but the idea was that you would ask the ghost what you wanted to know, and it would, with its horrible, you can imagine it for yourself. I mean, we don't know about what the voice was like, but you can imagine what it was like if it happened. It will be quite a frightening thing to do in the night time, but the ghost would tell you what you wanted to know, or it wouldn't. And there's one of these things, which is to do with love, when somebody is in love with somebody, unrequited, and it's clear that, that, that the question is, um, is this going to work out or not? Uh, that kind of stuff. So we have no idea on the whole of what questions might be um, asked for, but the important thing about this is that ghosts, everybody knew were better off down there and you bring a ghost up on its own to ask something like this you're you're that you're really asking for trouble because um you've got to get rid of it afterwards because the ghost might look around and think hey this is great i'm not going back down there so you have to so in this tablet at the end of the ritual for the necromancy which is asking the dead for it there are lots of spells to Send him back fast so that there's no trouble. It's a rather amusing thing that you could you could think it's a bit dodgy, but um, but there are not many cases of it. But what is interesting is that divination with a skull in this way um, appears also in, in in classical sources and in Hebrew sources, and it was passed on. So people knew about this later. Even even to the point that in France, in the Middle Ages, a very famous rabbi wrote a passage about necromancy with a skull. And he says um, in the commentary about it, well, this is what you do. This is it. You get the question. And he says, the question is whether people really heard the voice or whether they imagined it. So in about 1500 AD, there were thinkers and philosophers who, attracted by this topic and considering it, didn't leave it with their mouths open uh, that everything everybody said was true, but they considered where the possibility was that because of the commitment psychologically and the need that the person would hear a voice when, as it were, nobody else would. But that's a rem remarkable thing that this corner of... of, of um, the ghost story, which we find from a couple of sources in Babylonia, is in fact part of a widespread idea that the skull is a rational means of communication. So it's a very interesting topic. And um, the, the things that see, I, I have this problem. Um, I've never seen a ghost myself. I have no opinion about whether they do exist or they don't exist. It's really not my concern. What I'm interested in is the writing about it from the Mesopotamian people and others as well, about what they think and what they record. So my own feelings, there are neither here nor there, but I've never seen one. But the thing here is that if you look into the question of ghosts, you find it such a widespread topic of belief in the human race that I think it's a kind of general matter that is characteristic of human beings and that it surfaces all periods in all cultures and sometimes it's trodden down as i said but it nevertheless is there and it ultimately i believe reflects the arrogance of the human race that um, it's never been acceptable for human beings to believe that important me wonderful me when i die i'm really gone for good it's a hard thing to digest 
And therefore, I think this is the origin of the idea that some part of a person, the important part of a person, the kind, intelligent, creative, nasty, malicious and horrible part of a person that makes them who they are, comes out of them when the body goes back into the soil and it goes somewhere in the world. I mean, somewhere out of sight. And this belief, of course, underpins modern religions today because clergymen often talk about the dead in heaven and their spirits are with this and spirits are with that. So there's a kind of um, comfortable reference to the idea that more of a person survives in their body. And this has always been true. And I think, um, I, so I decided to, when writing about these texts, was not to write about them like a scientist with a telescope. Oh, I see here, they they believe this, they believe that, how stupid. Or, well, never mind, that's what they believe. They were silly and primitive. Well, there's nothing to do with that. They're just like we are, in my opinion, these ancient people. There's hardly any distinction to be made between them as Homo sapiens and us as Homo sapiens. And I think the only way to write about it was, as it were, from the inside. So I wrote about it. Um, not naively taking everything at face value, but as, as from the Babylonian point of view, the big assumption is that what they're telling us, what they wrote over nearly 3,000 years is what they really thought and that we can get some idea of it. And what the idea we get of it is a very common human matter. Very common indeed. It's a very remarkable thing. So I had a, a lovely time writing this book and rather sorry when it came to an end, but um, uh, th there you are. Perhaps the slight difference might be that they wrote on cuneiform tablets, clay tablets, versus the various uh, electronic devices we have today. <laughs> well, that's true. But I tell you something important about that, that people who wrote on clay tablets from about 3500 BC onwards, very long period of time, made a very intelligent decision because clay tablets survive in the ground or in collections perfectly they survive so you on a dig you can dig up a tablet which is two and a half thousand years old if you're careful and you take it out and dry it in the air it will be tough you can handle it and you can read it like it was just written where there's no electronic thing in the whole universe that in two and a half millennia will still exist i don't think many of them will last for more than two and a half centuries and it's all transitory, it's all ephemeral, and no electronic records are safe. But the thing about clay tablets is if you don't throw them in the river, but you look after them, they will last forever and ever. So this is an interesting dimension. Yeah. And you have, over the years of working at the British Museum, helped join various pieces together that have been found throughout time. Yes. Well, the thing is, the, most of the tablets came out of the ground of Iraq in the 19th century. And there were big excavations in big cities, sometimes with hundreds of workmen. And they try to recover the plans for buildings and the temples and the whole of the city, if possible. And they excavated objects and pottery and jewellery and weapons and everything else like that. And with them, there were these ancient clay tablets. And sometimes they were found loose and strayed around and sometimes they were found under the ground where they'd been buried accidentally or they were in a box on purpose all sorts of things and when they've come back they're often um the, their experiences in antiquity often meant they were broken and 
if, if you have a piece of tablet like this, um, it's often going to survive in one piece because it's not so large, but sometimes they're very big indeed, two foot high or something like that. And often they are found in pieces. Now, if the archaeologists were careful and painstaking, they will have extracted from the ground all the pieces of the tablet from which it was once constituted. So we, we, we have lots and lots of fragments which came with the tablets, but it's such a huge matter that we can't join them on very, very quickly. But sometimes there's internal evidence about which group came with which fragments, and we can sometimes make the smallest join. So you have a tablet made out of 30 different pieces, and they might be one like this and one like that, and then you get the basic shape, and then the bit goes here and the bit goes there. And it's very wonderful when as a result of all that collaboration, because it takes a lot of people, and when it's finally done, you might have a complete document or nearly complete document where before you just had little bits and the little bits are hopeless because it says, well, the God, somebody did um, dot, 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 to um, dot, dot, mm, I don't know. And then he went and, and it's useless. But when you join them all together, and this is, very exciting with, for example, the Gilgamesh epic, which has 12 big tablets of the whole story. And lots of scholars have worked on this, identifying pieces. So we haven't got the whole 12 tablets, but we've got the whole narrative. And it's a bit like Hollywood. You can follow the adventures of this hero and falling in love with goddesses and the flood story and all these marvelous things all written down on tablets, which have been gradually pieced together from in this gigantic jigsaw pattern but it's very exciting if you are reading something which is hard to understand and you get a little bit that gives you the ends of the lines suddenly you understand it that is always very exciting yeah perhaps you're the world's best puzzle player <laughs> well i don't know i i don't like doing ships and gardens and things like that you get on <laughs> jigsaw puzzles they're usually rather boring although i gather that um, jigsaw puzzles are not what they used to be so for example you can buy jigsaws with no picture at all so that's just a load of white thing that sorts out the people who are good or not <laughs> and another thing is that when you're a child they always have four straight sides but you can have a jigsaw where the sides are completely erratic so you've got no edge because once you've got the sea and the grass it's easy i mean it's kind of boring but without an cuneiform is more like that the white one or the one with no definable edges it's more like that right did you find that any of these ghosts that returned were benevolent were they always harmful or causing some type of disharmony I don't think um, there are any which have no bad effects, but um, I, it, it's hard to be, I don't think there were any ghosts that people were glad to see and welcome for tea kind of thing. I don't think that was the case. I think all people would always be a bit unhappy if a ghost was there because they wouldn't know what it was going to lead to. But I think most of them were were regarded as a little pathetic and to be rescued but you know there's another side of it the Assyrian army were always going abroad to fight weapon fight with their weapons and kill the enemy and cut their heads off and massacre them and all that kind of thing the human activity which is just as alive today as it's ever been and um, according to Mesopotamian ideas all those dead soldiers um, would either rot on the plane or be buried but all the ghosts of those dead soldiers will be thinking well 
I know what I'm going to do. And they go straight to Nineveh and they go in the palace and they pull the hair of the queen and make everybody miserable and get their own back on the horrible Assyrians. So I think if you take it logically, that if you kill people, you're likely to have trouble from their ghosts. I have a theory, although again, this can't be proved, that when the Assyrian army went on campaign, they'd have with them a small unit whose job was that, um, to exorcise the ghosts of the enemy dead so that they would stay there. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have trouble with them afterwards. And I, I think it's very likely that that's what happened. Otherwise, they'd have this problem. It seems that the ancient Mesopotamians really took care of their loved ones when they died as far as the rituals so that they wouldn't come back and give them a fright. Yes. There was a sort of bargain idea um, that, that, that the oldest son um, would take responsibility um, for his dead father's future peace of mind and would make these offerings. And they were regular offerings. They were, they, and so if you had a ghost who, um, de as it were, depended on them, food and drink, and was sitting at the bottom waiting for more and nothing came, start looking at his watch and think, you know, hey, hello, you know, and then... Um, resentment would build up and after a while um, the ghost would appear demanding this um, to be resumed because quite a lot of the um, magic or the, the recitations to deal with that problem refer to the responsibility and the fact we would do it and we would do it and I suppose it's like everything else you start off being punctilious about it but after a few months you think oh well what the hell you know and then <laughs> then you find out then they come back. I just read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was translated by Robert Thurman and had a conversation with him. And in reading that, I saw parallels in how the living could assist the dying to have a positive journey. Yes. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, I think they had similar ideas and um, certainly people were there priests were there to see somebody as it were over the border um, and there were there was a allotted period of time that had to go by before they could be sure that the spirit had left the body it was not instantaneous in, in the Babylonian understanding but it's interesting because um, I, I read in fact quoted in my book a passage from a Tibetan source describing ghosts um, in life what it's like you know what they are like how they behave and it i printed um printed it in this discussion because it was really could have equally applied to the mesopotamians the same sort of ideas the same sort of relationship and um, consideration so i think it is a human universal and i i think it goes back to the very beginning of time yeah Defining ghosts in this case seems to be a spirit that one actually visually sees or right it isn't it isn't just a somebody visiting you in a dream per se it's actually like an apparition well the babylonians talk about seeing ghosts and what room they see them in and what sometimes what they're wearing and um, uh, so they they all the information about it which is collected means that they saw things not in a dream but when they were awake that they, they saw ghosts and th this is um 
if you're um, a skeptic about the whole idea of the ghost and think it's a load of nonsense, then you think it's a load of nonsense. But people who see ghosts don't find this at all, at all difficult to, to you know, I went to, went to a psychic society in London when I was writing this book to give a talk about the Mesopotamian attitude of get towards ghosts. And I said that I thought you had a situation where it wasn't belief or disbelief, but people took them for granted. And um, that I know that was difficult for people today to understand, but I think that's how it was. And when I finished this talk, the chairman said, well, it's very interesting what you have to say. Of course, you don't have to persuade us about ghosts. We know all about them. So <laughs> that was a rather interesting thing. And of course, I've met a lot of people who um, have told me about what's happened to them um, in the ghostly world, both at literary festivals. Sometimes people come up and say, well, I was very interested in what you had to say, because let me tell you, when I was a girl, you know, and then all that kind of stuff. And um, even somebody I was once at school with wrote and said, um, about 70 years later, 60 years later, she wrote and said that um, they'd seen one when, they were, and it, no, no, it's amazing. In fact, I have a hunch that uh, if you had a group of people and you, you, in fact, when I tried to persuade my publisher to publish the first ghosts, they called Hodder. We had a meeting with the editor and um, three or four other people, the publicity agent and the, this, that, you know, five or six people. And I said, um, that I thought it was actually an unacknowledged part of the human psyche and that everybody really did underneath believe all this stuff. And that, um, for example, I said, if you go to a dinner party at the weekend, you, you if you say there are 12 people at a dinner party, when there's a lull in the conversation, try saying this, oh, we had a visit today from some idiot from the British Museum who says that everybody believes in ghosts really and they're to be taken seriously as a part of human history and evolution. I mean, how can anybody be so unscientific about anything? And then if you do that at a dinner party, there'll be a silence. And then somebody will say, well, when I was at school, and then they'll say something like that. And then someone say, yes, well, actually, my auntie told me, that, you know, and, and then out of, say, 12 people, I think eight people, this is my estimate, eight people will either confess to having seen a ghost themselves or know somebody well that they trust have, who's seen a ghost and they've heard about. But that, those two features. So I said this out of my head. Um, when I was talking to the publishers about it. And when I finished this, and the publicity officer said, actually, it's a funny thing you should say that because, and then two people in the room whom I was trying to persuade of the validity of this argument confessed to being in the same position. So that was a cool thing. Yeah, there is some stigma around it. And perhaps since we have quote, science showing that there are germs and that people can have certain illnesses because of some type of poor hygienic conditions or genetic yes, conditions that maybe the ancients are dismissed as being superstitious. Well, you could say that, um, that their theory of disease um, reckoned things that they couldn't see because um, there are other things apart from ghosts that can make you ill and if, if you're asleep and a ghost goes in your ear you don't see it but there are things that you can't see which can make you ill 
they definitely, definitely had that idea. If you cut someone on with the sword, then they have a wound. But people got ill in, intestinally and um, all over the place in their lungs. And sometimes they got fever, sometimes they got this and that and the other. But they thought, they attributed them to forces of this kind, which and in the main they couldn't see. But you could say that this was um, the early version of an, of an understanding which in the modern world was put down to things you can only see with a microscope which cause these effects. You can say that, as it were, the microbe is there. But then if you say that the microbe is the modern equivalent of, the, of that belief, then it's all one continuum. It's just that the basic conception is there are things that you can't see that make you ill. And science has one explanation for it. But the one that they had before, in their own terms, was equally valid because no one has ever seen a microbe walking down the street. I mean, you know, you, we have to believe these, what people tell us about it. You know, I, of course I believe it. But it's not that they're diametrically opposed. It's a different slant on the same matter. That's the way I, the way I look at it. There's a 150-year history with parapsychology all about looking at phenomena with spirits and yes. entities that has actually been uh, very substantial. I know. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's another thing, because um, as far as I understand it, um, all the people who operate like that operate in defiance of science because science um, in, in, the, in the sense of somebody wearing a white coat and telling you what to do science um, has a theory that things that can't be repeated um, are not convincing evidence you have to be able to repeat an experiment you have to be able to repeat a reaction or repeat something in this way to establish the truth of a statement or the truth of a theorem well um, I find that unsatisfactory because if you have a person of immaculate honesty and clarity and they're sitting playing the piano and a ghost in 17th century costume comes over and turns over the page for you um, and they never come back, that is a, an, ex an experience which can never be repeated and never will be repeated. And so what do you do with that? I'm not saying that is a concrete point, but it's a point that, that repetition or reiteration of something is not an intrinsic rule of the universe, whether it's true or not. So, at least to my mind. And the consequence is that people who do things, they are called parapsychologists. They're called para because the scientific or the other side of the world dismisses it as not being genuine so or not being true. And as a result of that, there is, in the history of it all, a huge amount of faking. You know, fairies in the garden and knockings on the table and ectoplasm in hotel lavatories. I don't know what. I mean, if you look into the history of it, part of it is um, ruined by fraud, either for money or for fame or for making a documentary or this. So this, this you have the attack of the science or the ignoring by science. And then you have the people who latch onto this as a way of making money. And what's left in the middle is really rather frail. And the other thing about it all is that somebody, as I see it, someone who's seen a ghost themselves has no interest whatsoever in ever trying to persuade somebody else that they did. 
who doesn't believe them, it doesn't make any difference to them because if they have, they have. So I think a lot of people are in that category and um, have had some experience which they can't explain in any other way. And they're not worried about whether anybody else believes them or whether ghosts exist at large or whether you're going to persuade somebody in the laboratory. It's just neither here nor there. It's what happens to you. And of course, everyone can say, well, you eat too much, you drink too much, you know, you're half asleep, um, you've got a headache, you've got fever, you've got this, you know, the curtains wobble in the wind, I don't know what. I mean, you can always say, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. But I'll tell you one small thing before we conclude. When I went to a literary festival, talked about this, to try and sell as many copies of this book as possible, which is what writers like to do. When we were at dinner afterwards, a lady said, came round to where I was having coffee and said, yeah, I was very interested in what you had to say about ghosts, your sympathetic way of talking about them, because it's something that happened to me. And I said, ah, oh, yes, because lots of people have begun a conversation like that, something that happened to me. She said when she was a teenager, she was in... Um, in the late summer, upstairs at her desk in front of the window, writing or something or other, and she looked out of the garden, into the garden below and she saw her grandfather walking across the lawn. And this was a rather astonishing thing because he was dead. So she gathered herself together, as they say in Victorian novels, and ran downstairs to find her mother and my mother was in the kitchen and she was slumped on the edge of the sink looking out into the garden through her window and when the girl went in the room she turned around and said you're never going to believe this but i just saw my father walking across the grass so this lady i don't know how old she was about 65 70 she was very um She'd never told this story to anybody, I think, in 50 years. I don't think she'd ever talked about it. It certainly didn't come out like a rehearsed thing. And she sure as hell didn't make it up to convince me. It was described in such a way that the hairs on the back of one's neck became stiff. It was really the voice of, um, of conviction. It was just not an invention and not a misunderstanding. I mean, it is not possible to mistake some old man for your grandfather. It just isn't possible, especially in your back garden. And it isn't possible to mistake your father, uh, an old man for your father when it wasn't. It's just not possible. And she said she just, she just, that, that, that was what happened. It was just, there's nothing you could do about it. So that's a kind of, it encapsulates a lot of human experience that, that people do have something and they don't talk about it much. Right. And it's very individual for each person. I also spoke with a psychiatrist, Dr. Manuel Matis, who had so many of these experiences himself. He actually wrote a book called The Borders of Normal, A Psychiatrist Destigmatizes the Paranormal, because he also witnessed that in many of his patients, although he, with the Hippocratic Oath, did not talk about his own patients' experiences. However, he did describe how those experiences in his life actually enhanced his own personal journey, if you will, of, of, of his experiences as a soul, as a being. So it is very individual to each person, or can be. I think be. that's right. Well, um, I, I, I've never, as I said, seen a ghost. I hope I do. 
I won't be in the least bit frightened by it, but I, I would quite like to one day. I'm, I'm always um, hoping for the best, but so far not. But I have an idea. I have an idea. Um, since um, religions always refer to these, um, the, the dead being somewhere, they take it for granted. And if, if um, in heaven or wherever, but the principle is that part of a person survives after death. If you have this idea, well, um, the spirit that, for example, a clergyman might refer to in this way um, is no different from a ghost, except in one area, which is that ghosts are usually visible and the spirits of the dead are not. But if you overlook the difficulty, the difference between being visible and invisible, then what people say about ghosts sensible persons that is and what people say about the spirits of the dead sensible persons that is is the same thing so if you follow this logically you end up with the theorem that um, ghost and spirit um, are identical and therefore you have to explain the problem about half of the people not believing in it and half of them believing in it but the simplest solution is to me that um, whatever it takes to see a ghost, not everybody can do it. So, for example, I don't know whether this is nonsense or not, but lots of people I know are colorblind. And if you are not colorblind, it's very hard to believe that people can be like that, otherwise normal. And I know people who are tone deaf. And you think, goodness me, anybody can get by with a tune. I mean, what's wrong with you, you know, for goodness sake. Um, but it's true. They're tone deaf, so that they these are um, these are important, of course, but they're not life threatening or or anything. But they show a normal functioning human being who is, in some respects, blind to a certain kind of stimulus. Yeah, well said. So I wonder whether that's true of this thing about the dead. So the, the people who think about the spirits and they've gone somewhere and bye bye and um, we'll never forget them it's all well and good but lots of them come and annoy people lots of them are there and some people can see them and some people can't right so this would be a perfectly simple explanation of everything to do with ghosts and religion all in one bundle right right well and many people today when they lose a loved one continue a relationship with that loved one through communicating with them in their thoughts through visiting mediums or having dreams, or they might even be visited in their dreams and are comforted by it. There's even research that that, that can be supportive for people as well. Oh, I think so. I think so. Yes, and it's, co it's common, I think, enough for people to dream of their um, dead relatives, their parents especially, or brother or sister, for them to come into a dream. It doesn't mean that they've come in the bedroom and taken off their shoes and then sat on the pillow and whispered in your ear. But, I mean, it's part of the same kind of thing, but Sometimes it's very credible and very powerful. You brought up religion. How did the ancient Sumerians, Assyrians relate to religion in the context of spirits and ghosts? And also, I'm curious if they ever felt that they saw angels or maybe even what we might consider today UAP or aliens. Right. Well, we can deal with those one by one. Firstly, um, the religion in ancient Mesopotamia, um, there were human beings and there were 
gods and goddesses. And there were lots and lots of gods and goddesses. They had a very extensive pantheon and um, very extensive. And there were three gods at the top and then major gods and minor gods. And they all had their different temples and, and small gods worked for the big gods. And there was a kind of phone book where it was all laid out. But there were lots and lots of gods. And um, they were all, um, some were naughty and some were misbehaved, but they were all, as it were, on the side of good. And human beings each had a god to whom they were sort of dedicated when they were born, who looked after them theoretically. Like, like um, maybe like a guardian angel? Well, they didn't have angels. Angels is a later thing. It's a difficult word, angels, because um, it has nothing to do with Mesopotamia, I don't think. But the thing is, you've got, you've got the gods up in heaven and you've got us here. And there were some, one or two wicked gods who'd been sent to hell because they were very naughty. Um, but on the whole, that's how that worked. And in between, in the what you could, might call the ether, or unseen on the whole, there was a, quite a large range of demons and ghosts. And the demons, um, on the whole, were evil. Some of them were very, very inimical. And they, um, they were immortal demons they devils and demons they couldn't be killed they could be banished and exercised but they were always there and they made people ill more than ghosts did and cause all sorts of other trouble and the demons couldn't be seen on the whole uh, like the ghosts on the whole and um but there are records of people seeing a certain kind of demon in one place or another so um, they thought they did or they did i don't know which but anyway so the demons um, were the enemy and they had to be exercised and dispelled and you had to wear things against them and you had to be on your guard and the ghosts were a bit of an enemy but not entirely and you had to take steps there as well so you had these three uh, three things gods up there the um, things you couldn't see floating about in the middle and then us on the earth that sort of idea and on the whole um, th there were lots of temples with sacrifices a bit like in the bible in the big ones and re regular services and each village had its local god and goddess that sort of idea and it was a rather human thing and the gods um weren't vengeful like in the old testament there was nothing like hell no punishment after death there was nothing of that kind so people on the whole got on with the gods fairly well and when they were not well they thought more about them um and it was a bit like in India, in Hinduism, when you have such a large number of gods, not everybody knew them all, and some were the story of great um, exciting narratives, and some were a bit faceless, and you couldn't be quite sure who they were. But that's how that was. So angels, I think, are a, 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 an invention of a later time. And you could argue, of course, that um, such figures appear in the world when you move from pantheism where you have a huge number of gods to a central monotheistic religion where you only have one god and sometimes the what were separate gods before with their own existence and their own right to be worshipped sometimes um, get tucked in in a funny way like saints or angels they are you could argue i would be inclined to argue that that's what their origin is they are a recycling of other important um, 
the conception of other important entities that affect the human race and can help the human race in a new version. I think that may be true. I'll probably be burnt at the stake. That's my view. <laughs> As for aliens, aliens is a load of rubbish. Okay. In my humble opinion. So there's no evidence of of these ancients seeing what some people are experiencing these days with that phenomena. Not, you mean flying saucers and all this sort of thing? Sure. Is there any evidence of that in your... Um... In, in Mesopotamia, the, um, there was no fog or smog or pollution. So the night sky that stretched over ancient Iraq and the whole of the ancient world was as clear and, uh, to see as um, anything. And what they did was they had a conception that things that happened in the heavens affected things on the earth. And the gods up in heaven certainly affected the life of persons. And also the phenomena of uh, um, observable in the heavens, which they could see very clearly, um, could be explained not only theologically, if you like, but also scientifically, because they developed a very rigorous understanding of astronomy, which came out of the fact that they could see everything every night and people slept on the roof, usually. And if you lay on your back with your hands behind your head and looked up at the sky, it was like a drive-in movie. And you could see the whole of the heavens and the Milky Way and the various other installations there. And probably people knew the night sky very well. And the thing about it is that some people realised at certain times, probably very, very ancient times, somebody noticed that what used to be over there is now over there. And how can that be? And you can say, well, it's a dragon chasing the sun and vomiting it out again or something like that if you're a mythologer. But if you have a bent for calculation and numbers, then people thought maybe there's another explanation for it. And there jolly well was. And they worked out all sorts of incredible things mathematically and intellectually about the universe. They could predict eclipses. They understood about the tracks followed by different bodies. And it was amazing what they knew. A lot of it was strongly influential on the Greeks. So with all that stuff going on, observations of first and last visibility on the horizon and all that stuff, um, if they'd actually seen spaceships, uh, somebody would have said, oh gosh, we saw a very funny flying saucer with petrol cloud out the back and funny blokes with eyes on stalks. I wonder what that was. They didn't. And they scrutinised the night sky for evidence for thousands of years. And they're shooting stars. There are um, flare, flaring things, I suppose. You, they, they knew about everything to be seen there. And it was all familiar to them. And they studied it as, as, a, as a reference framework for both astronomy and astrology. And there's no squeak of anything in cuneiform about one of these alien things. And so I don't like it. Um, and it causes a lot of trouble because people write successful commercial books where they explain all this in a convincing sort of way. So people believe in it, but there's no evidence for it whatsoever. And the evidence of what we do have is much more interesting and much more explicable and doesn't depend on um, just believing what people tell you. I completely appreciate that view. At the same time, they were 
communicating with gods and spirits and ghosts. Well, they were communicating with them, but they didn't get letters from gods and they didn't get letters from um, ghosts. They spoke to the ghosts and they spoke to the gods. But I mean, people speak to the gods today. It's called prayer. Lots of people talk to God all the time. And does anybody ever say, well, you never guess what happened after breakfast this morning? Well, no, it's a one way thing. But the whole nature of the human relation with all this whole tapestry of entity is it's one way. It's one way. Well, and some would say that it's that it goes both ways, but that's everybody's own their own individual viewpoint. Is there a particular religion that you see in modern time that echoes this ancient culture? Or what did you see happen with those with those beliefs? Answering it simply, you, you have the creation of monotheistic religion, what they call the Abrahamic religions. So you have Judaism. Christianity and Islam, all three of which are strongly connected. And the dominance of this monotheistic system, in each case um, supported by Holy Writ, um, the, the Bible, the Quran and the Hebrew Bible, um, these voluminous statements um, gave, gave these modern monotheistic religions a great deal of status. And they had the effect um, in that part of the world of killing off all the old gods. So they were they were spurned. I mean the Old Testament is vociferous about idols and and um um worshipping false gods and so forth. The prophets in the Old Testament went on and on and on and on and on and on and on about it in a rather tiresome way. And they they regarded um this any kind of entity beyond a single central deity as anathema and Christianity and Islam um, followed in their footsteps. So that is what happened. It was knocked out. It was replaced by a much more um, direct and, and, and pruned down system, which in, in the history of Christianity and Islam was in fact propagated by the sword and it was spread deliberately as a a replacement for early religion it was it was militant so this is um what what happened why it disappeared within other parts of the world um, pantheistic religions still exist in some parts of the world there are animist religions which did exist which anthropologically are regarded as a distinct and possibly earlier phase of thinking to theology with with the entities of god's model on human beings i don't know whether there's any chronological implication of the two but the fact is that animism is a separate system where beliefs of um, power in trees and um, i don't know what um, the whole of an animistic approach and living as part of the animal kingdom in this kind of fashion is a, a system which still exists in in the world so it's not all one system but the effects of those the stamp of those three religions bonked on the head um, the gods of ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and ancient Italy, who are now hardly household names. And if they do still exist somewhere, they're probably very, very irritable. Yeah, yeah.
Is there anything else you want to share today about evidence of first ghosts? Knowing that, of course, there's so much more in your book, and I hope people do get a chance to read it. I think people should have a chance to buy it. I strongly recommend that. I think um, my view, as I've often remarked about this, is that for a normal household, three copies is ideal. So you have one um, in the glove compartment of the car in case you're stuck in traffic and one on the bedside table in case things um, there are not more distracting and one in the lavatory in case you get held up. So that seems to me a good wholesome approach and it's only it's not very expensive now the paperback version so probably a bulk buy would be a sensible move but um i think i'd be glad if people um, read it partly because it's got quite a lot about ancient mesopotamia in which people don't know enough and also i've tried to explain how we know what we know and what the words really mean and also i wrote a bit about um the um belief in ghosts in general and how to regard it and i i think if someone has ever seen a ghost and never told anybody and always felt well perhaps i was daft or perhaps i didn't really if they read that they might find it rather reassuring um from that point of view as well yeah the ghosts have been with us since the first evidence of writings well long before that I and think. long before hmm. that yeah i think from the very beginning of the species so that is a long thing I hope we can have more conversations in the future, Irving. It's a joy to hear all that you have to share. It'll be a pleasure. Anyway, I'm glad that we talked today. And let me know what happens. And maybe people will send you stories about ghosts that they've seen. Send them on to me because I'll be very interested. Oh, well, wonderful. Thank you so much for being with me today, Irving. It's a pleasure. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death?